Welcome to my POV. That's my point of view. And today is episode two, uh, where we pick up from our previous episode uh, with Brother Jay. Um, during that segment, we left off uh, discussing our pensions um, as prevalent today as they were previously. Uh, prior to the welfare state, did we build more wealth and produce more jobs? And women and leadership roles. Uh, pretty much discussing how you know women raising families without the father present. And how has that been uh, for the household, for the black community, uh, be it positive or negative? Um, and we would pick back up on that. So uh, without further ado... I like to welcome to the POV platform, uh, Brother Jay. Hey, what's going on, Jay? What's going on? Man? It's a pleasure once again, you know, to be joined with you and yeah. to go with some of these topics that are very touchy. But um, I think it's for us to do it, so you know, but it's a pleasure once again. Yes, yes. Likewise, it's a pleasure to have you. It's always great um, to build with you, um, you know, to have uh, scholarship conversations and, you know, shed some some knowledge to the people. Um, so, you know, without further ado, I, I want you to, you know, touch on what you were addressing uh, in the previous episode in regards to women in leadership roles uh, and raising a family without the father present? Yes, um, that subject, um, we were definitely, we were going very deep into that subject and I think we were more or less just asking a question from a, a, a form of epistemology just to know and ask the right questions. And from the welfare state from 63 to 65 under Lyndon Johnson administration, um, the government came up with an idea to attempt to help not just us, but other, you know, other people as well. The whole country, which the idea was supposed to be poverty. That was basically poverty stricken. Correct. Um, but it seemed to really take a real effect on us. So in 63 to 65, um, the numbers was growing. So I'm not going to sit here and say that the numbers wasn't growing. Because it went from the 50s to being roughly about 13% of children being born out of wedlock in the African-American community. And it spiked around 63 to 65 to 25%. So the numbers was going up. Got but it. with the welfare state, it seemed to take it to a whole nother level. And it really affected us. And we see today it's roughly 77%. Um, I think we did discuss prior um, with the CDC 2015 data shows that uh, black fathers today are more likely to be in their children's life more than our European counterparts. So there is an um, equilibrium to the argument. But um, to basically to put the ID 
idea on the table and just look at it for what it is and see what's the best case scenario. So with women from the welfare state being empowered to be in their homes and raising the children pretty much, um, I wouldn't say by themselves, because there are certain situations where there is a, a co-parenting uh, relationship. But um, we do see, especially around the time of the 80s when drugs came in and both of them basically abandoned the home in a, in a way as well. So it's, it's a catch-22. We have to really you know, put the data together and then, you know, handle it that way. Correct, correct. So um, Thomas Sowell, you know, um, I, which I know you are aware of, uh, for those who don't know, uh, he's an American economist and social theorist, um, currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, mm -hmm. and he spoke on the welfare state and had um, a few quotes um, in regards to uh, the welfare state and how it affects people. So. Um, he wasn't supportive of the welfare state. Well, not let me not say he wasn't. He is not supportive of the welfare state. And one of the quotes he had is that uh, the assumption that spending more of taxpayers' money will make things better has survived all kinds of evidence that it has made things worse. I've never understood why it is greed to want to keep the money you have earned, but not greed to want to take somebody else's money. Uh, I know you've done a lot of, you know, research and a lot of reading and um, identify with Thomas Sowell uh, in a, on a lot of topics and uh, a lot of his, his ideologies. So I wanted you to speak... Um, on your personal opinion in regards to the welfare state. Um, is it good? Is it bad? Should it go away? Does it damage uh, the black family structure or does it uh, helps the black family structure? And, I, and I'm only speaking about black families and that's not to say that only black people receive welfare because we know that's not to be true, right? But um, we, you know, we're talking about black women and leadership roles as far as being in a home without a man, you know, and raising the kids. And so when I address this welfare state topic, I want to specifically stick to, you know, our people. Okay. Um, you know, that's an excellent question. There's layers to it, and we have to really be able to be in a sound mind, and we will have to leave the emotions for the time being to even quantify the damage. Yeah, stop right there for one second. Uh, you heard what he said, people? Um, we have to remove emotions. Uh, there's a lot of different talking points, a lot of conversations that we have where we can never get a resolution to it or people can never grasp the total idea of it because they are emotionally involved in in the in, in the conversation and by being emotionally involved in the conversation it kinda 
it kind of blurs your judgment, right? And that's why here at, you know, my POV, we coined the term, uh, you know, logic over emotions. So we want to use logic at all times. When we're having discussions, any guests I have on this show, we're always using logic. We're talking about, you know, conversations that may be sensitive uh, to a lot of people. Um, and we're talking about conversations that's near and dear to us because we're talking about our people. But we are mature enough and intelligent enough to know that we have to separate emotions from these conversations. So I'm going to pass it back to Brother Jay. But I just wanted to emphasize on using logic over emotions when having these type of discussions. second let's address that right because uh you said it the first time and i wanted to let you keep building but then you mentioned it again so i just want to provide some clarification for the listeners so you you said twice the man stepped out of the home you know um you know and most people would interpret that as basically the man left his responsibilities and i just want you to speak uh or elaborate a little more on that because we know there was a lot of different you know uh, circumstances and situations which cause the man you know not to be in a home it's not like men just up and left the house like you know no. like fuck them kids and i mean i don't no, want nothing no, to do no, you no. get what i'm saying so i just want you to you, to, sure. to go in a little more in depth on that sure i could definitely um go into it so we know with the welfare state basically a man cannot be in the home so if they they were receiving um child support or um, the support was for the woman when the man is not there. So, so was, 
So, so, so did the man leave the home or was the man pushed out of the home? And that's not to say, and that's not to say that there's no man that ever decided to just walk away from his responsibilities because we know there are, but on, on a large scale, were they, did they leave or were they pushed out? So what we have found out in a lot of situations that it was planned, so they tried to counter um, the government in the sense of, okay, honey, I'm going to leave out. So there was a situation where the man was always there, but they would leave out on the social worker or someone that was attached to their case, they would walk out. Right. They would leave. Right. So, you know, they couldn't leave any of their items there because if the social worker would see that, that would show that there's a man involved. And then you don't need the funds, or you don't need the um, help. So there are a lot of cases that this occurred as well. That's why I said it's very loaded, and there's so many layers to it. So we have to be able to really look at it from all angles and then make the determining factor. And then be able to differentiate, was it right or was it wrong? Right. Agreed. I, I like to, I like to um, just bring clarification on that because... You know, we're living in a day in society where people catch a soundbite and they run with it. And it would, you know, be interpreted as if men just, you know, walked away from the responsibility. So that's why I want you to speak on that, because it is multi-layered and there are a variety of reasons why, you know, things uh, took place the way they, they it did. Right. Uh, even with you saying, you know, the man knowing the, the situation is like, okay, oh, you got an appointment, a social worker coming over on Tuesday, okay, well, I know I'm going to leave out, or whatever the case may be, for that particular uh, um, day and when they come over. Like, like I don't know if you've seen it, but for anyone that watched the movie Claudine, that pretty much showed yeah, an exemplify yeah, yeah, what the, exactly. When the man would come, yes, and he would have to leave when so yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. this is what was actually happening in the 70s, uh, early 70s, late 70s, all the way to today. Um, I, no, I mean, mid-60s, this, this is when it started, but then you start to see a transition. And um, it, it put us in a deficit. Um, I'm one to understand when you're looking at the statistics, you see jobs um, aren't those that produce wealth. It's the ability to control your re uh, resources and commodities. Mm -hmm. that make the, uh, people wealthy. So I'm not in here trying to attempt to say that jobs are the the way, but in that time, to piggyback off of what we were talking about with the pensions, um, the baby boomers were able to, they had stability because of a job, because they were staying on jobs 40 years, 50 years, and a, a lot of them didn't have college degrees. So they, they were, um, this was the trade era. Trades, yes, trades. So the trade errors was extremely important to building up, but we still didn't build up um, the idea of wealth to be a dominant um, power in the structure of America, what we call today. And I, and I know, well, I have a theory on why that is, right? Uh, so we, we addressed during, you know, 1960s before 1960s where you know a lot of the men had these different trades right where they can do work with their hands and they was able to provide services in the community and you know sustain a living like that but then we also know that the black family were was the main reason and um uh financial support behind 
some of our black leaders, you know, yeah. i.e., you know, Marcus Garvey, uh, yes. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, right? So with them making, you know, a, a decent living, they were funding these organizations and people that was leading the charge in these movements, as well as offerings and tithes in the local churches and stuff, right? So we've always gave our money away more than we saved it. Believe it or not, the first black business was the, uh, the black church. Um, believe it or not. Um, just to piggyback off what you were talking about, I think it was in 1856, if I'm not mistaken, Richard Allen and um, Alex, Alexandria, sorry, Cromwell, were the two who funded the first African Methodist church. Okay. And it was based upon business. Um, it, it, it was really a business industry. It was a part of the business industry, and it was also used um, for its influence on the black community. We already know that. You know, it, it was um, they would put people, the clergy, in these positions so they could touch the people. Right. So we know power today is based upon its strong influence because the people that we talk about, that's the power, the leaders. They have all the money. They took all the money in 1913 under the Federal Reserve Act. So they were able, these central bankers were able to control um, to China, Japan, all of the above through the central banking system. So we know that they control the money, but the, the main objective is the influence. Just to piggyback off of that. Gotcha. Yeah. No, so I, I just wanted to interject and, and, you know, state that fact in regards to, you know, when we were uh, established, structured family, were generating, you know, a decent, you know, wage and income through the trades, right? Mm -hmm. Be it plumbing, electricity, you know, roofing, fixing cars, whatever it is, right? Yeah, right. So um, I was just stating the fact that the money that we were receiving outside of taking care of our family we were putting it out in all these different, through all these different avenues. And it is it, kind, it kind of, you know, stagnated us building wealth. That's um, the huh? That's, that's definitely the con. You hit it right on the head. Right. Um, not to cut you off, but that, that's the con. I was just talking about the pros and the cons of, and that's very important, the pros and the cons of the family, the black family, and uh, what we would call um, Jim Crow. Right. Uh, that was the problem. Um, through the statistics, they show that we were the number one consumers at that time as well. So we wasn't putting it on. Um, we didn't have an infrastructure on wealth. You're correct. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the biggest problems that we faced. And, you know, we continue to face today. You know, though, though we don't have a, a Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Marcus Garvey currently, we still, you know, overwhelmingly put our money into churches. Uh, we still overwhelmingly, you know, fund different, you know, foundations and organizations who we believe have our best interests at hand or, or are trying to move the needle for us. And on top of that, we're, we're, we're the number one consumer. So it, it's, we've always... We've we we've always put money out, and never uh, never put money in collectively amongst just you know us 
the community and building wealth in the community. Um, I think we always had a false sense of what, uh, you know, progress and what building the community is. And that's why we always felt that when we was donating these funds to these leaders and organizations that we were doing our part, right? Mm -hmm. Just by doing that, when what we should have been doing was um, a lot of what Malcolm X was talking about, right? Or, you know, should I address him as his name before, you know, he left, he left this, you know, this earth, which was uh, Malik Al-Shabazz, did I, did I, right, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, um, if you can, I'd like to ask you, um, what do you think of Malcolm X briefly? What do you think of uh, Martin Luther King briefly? And then who do you feel had the best um, path forward for, for, for our people? Excellent question, brother. Um, so we have to understand um, there is a possibility of two different ways to meet um, the goal. Mm -hmm. And why do I say that? Um, when we look at Martin Luther King, most of us who are pro-black, uh, we tend to look at him as a docile human being who helped um, the European in his quest to continue on in a form of colonial colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but when we really look at his life, and we look at, not the beginning, but at the end, you'll start to see someone that was extremely radical in their thoughts. Um, if we look at the boy Clinton, um, there was a, um, there was a situation sanitation in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, and there was no one really speaking up about it, and Martin Luther King went there, and he protested, but the things he was saying wasn't the same Martin Luther King of the past. Um, he was talking about black dollar, black economics, he was holding the European accountable. Um, he was speaking out of, against the war of Vietnam. So there was a lot of things in his la latter days. Maybe the last five years, you'll see that he took on a radical position. Even though he continued on with the non-violence, but his radical speech were getting to a lot of different people. So, um, and then you have to understand as a leader, when you have children, right? Just think about it like this. You have children, and you're taking your, you have the guts to take your children out to protest, knowing that there is violent people out there. That is a radical way of looking at a situation. To take your children out there for protest, knowing that the Europeans of the day didn't, a lot of the radical Europeans of the day didn't care to put their hands and do things to his children. So on that side, I looked at it like, wow, you have to be extremely out of your mind to even think, because you understand? Yeah, so I, I think I think you're making some great points. Um, 
you make you make some great points and he definitely you know did wake up and smell the coffee towards the end you know and started speaking truth to to power um they like to call it radical i like to call it a realist right so what i think about and I, i've never thought about it until you actually just said it today what i think about in regards to him coming out with his children is you you want your children to know what's going on in the world right mm -hmm. and you also want them to know what daddy is out here fighting for um i'm sorry but i don't mean to cut you i was talking about children in general not just his children. okay got you got you i'm talking about children in general got you all right so go for go 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 forward yeah, go ahead. Finish up, bro. Position, no because i because my position was basically trying to elaborate on why he would have his own children out there right um but we you weren't talking about his specific children you was talking about all children so with that being said i don't have to go further on that and you can you can you can keep building on where you was at because you, you got to go into Malcolm X. So go ahead. Yes. So with his position, I'm looking at it like okay, you know, and then we me and you we spoke about this on a few occasions when Harry Harry Fonzo um Harry I, I, I forgot his name I don't want to mess up his name but um who's that? He was an actor, prestigious. Actor. Oh, ha Harry Belafonte. Yes. Right. And. He had a conversation, and a, a lot of um, people have heard this conversation of the analysis of leading our people into a burning home or a burning house. Right, right. A burning organization or a burning place. Right. And um, so it shows that in his mind of minds, he was looking at it from all the people. He did a well-thought antithesis from the worst-case scenario and the best-case scenario in his perspective. Right. So he can continue on in his own beliefs, in a sense, but also be a, a service to the community. So with Malcolm X being said, um, um, we pretty much know Malcolm X's story, but um, it seemed Malcolm, inside of the religion, the religion put like a leash, a leash on him, in a sense. Yes. He really couldn't speak his mind because you got to remember, at this time, Elijah Muhammad was the number one black business in America. And like what he was talking about, that's um, talking about the donations and how he was working his parishioners um, to go out, sell bean pies, the papers, all these different things. They were setting up uh, real estate, restaurants, all throughout um, America. Right. So, um, with that being said, there was a 503 plan that was put in place for religious organizations by LBJ as well in the 60s, 60s, around the same time of the welfare state. And in this, there were certain things that leaders couldn't say. So remember when we were talking about Richard Allen and the beginning of the black business, which was the church? Yeah. Uh, we find out that they were always, they always kept their hands on clergies. Why? Because the clergies had strong influence inside of the community. So if a riot or anything breaks out, they can go directly to the clergy and the clergy can put the fire up. So you got to remember, there were certain things that Elijah Muhammad couldn't really speak about. That's why he would say, I'm a religious leader. Mm -hmm. I'm not a politician. So they put the leash. So Malcolm X was radical and he looked at it from a whole different perspective. He knew when to put the religion to the side and deal strictly with the people. Right. From an intellectual perspective. 
And the people that he surrounded himself like Henry, uh, John Henry Clark, all these different prestigious historians, yes. he really wanted to understand what was happening and why was it happening. So um, the religious, um, the religion put a lease on him, and when he was able to come outside of the religion, then he started to become more of a logical thinker. He was an intellectual. Absolutely. He was looking at it not from a black and white thing. He was looking at it from a civil perspective. Correct. Meaning he was going out to go to the UN and show America for the hypocrisy and her being a hypocrite. Speaking out against certain things and not treating the people and treating, uh, uh, treating us as second-tier citizens. So this is when things changed. When he went out to the UN and then he was one... Remember, there's a European Union. He was trying to set up an African Union where he was going to different head of states to come together in a pan-African perspective. Correct. So um, his effect was going to be way different than the Martin Luther King effect because this was an international conglomeration. Absolutely. And this is what this is why um, this is what this is what put the FBI. We got remember the FBI. They had a position, no doubt about it. They were looking at Elijah Muhammad because Elijah Muhammad um, had the, like we said, the number one black business in America. So they were tapping his plane more than anybody else. But when he transitioned outside of Elijah Muhammad. He became a real problem. He was the definition of the black messiah that they was a, that people was afraid of. Right. So basically, when he transitioned out of religion, right? Because yes. to the white power structure, right? If you're a leader, a black leader, but you're religious, right? I.e., Islam, Christianity, Judaism, or whatever it is they really don't fear you as much because like you said you are confined within that religion which we know religion was created by them right so if they develop religion and you're a black leader who is a religious leader they understand that their structure that they design is going to keep you confined to uh, certain things, which is why, because Malcolm X wasn't on that, and he's, he was able to step away from religion and speak straight to what was really going on in the world, that's why he was a threat, right? This is why Black Panthers was a threat. This is why um, uh, Fred Hampton was a threat, right? The, the, they not they are not known even though Malcolm X was Muslim he's not known as a religious leader so they fear people who think logically independently and that's fighting for change that's not confined to their creation of religion and um yeah, man, that 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 says a lot. That says a lot. Um, so, if, no, no, it's fine. If you want, if you want to touch on something else, feel free to. I was about to ask you a question, but it was it was gonna. No, we can go 
led into your question, but I was going to say that's the definition of your, um, Europeans and the Euro um, centrism. And African um, centrism is a thing as well. So I'm not going to say it's just with Europeans, but I'm just saying from that perspective, the status quo is extremely important for the development of pushing the narrative. And the narrative is democracy. So we have to understand what's democracy and what is their democracy. Right. So that's, that's the question. And we can go into that another time, but oh, God, ask your question. So, uh, I was going to actually read a a quote from Thomas Sowell and then ask you um, what what do you think about it and to, you know, speak on it a little bit. So, he says that if you have been voting for politicians who promise to give you goodies at someone else's expense, then you have no right to complain when they take your money and give it to someone else, including themselves. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that statement? Okay, so we understand, right? Uh, when you're dealing with parties, and there is, you know, like we were talking about, there's a deal of politics, and then there are, in the nations, their politics. And the idea is always based upon Is being used, it shows 
are dominant. It shows hegemony. It shows that we encounter these certain places. So we have to understand that you can't go to your politician and not control them. Don't give them anything. Don't give them agenda. Because they tell us what agenda that they're looking for. If you notice, they, they already have an idea of what we need instead of hearing it from us. Right. They already have the best case scenario for you. Because they don't think that you can think for yourself. Right, right, which is... I'm sorry for the non-solidic but I just wanted to give an understanding of what is going on and what he's talking about at this moment. Yeah, nah, no apology needed. Uh, it was it was, it was, was brilliantly stated, and I agree. Um, I, I tell people all the time, like, if, if you're an investor, Brother Jay, right? You're wealthy, you're rich, and you're an investor, right? And you invest in, you know, up-and-coming businesses, right? And someone come to you and they have this great idea and they like, hey, Brother Jay, like, um, I got this idea, I want to do this, I started this up, da 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 this business, but I need a million dollars to get started, right? Are you going to give the person a million dollars, wait six, seven months, then come back to them and ask them for, you know, your return of investment? Or are you going to say, all right, look, I'll give you the million dollars, but this is what I want in return. This is what I want as far as stakes or stocks in the, in, in the business, right? You're, you're not going to give that a million dollars away. And just say, hey, do what you want to do with it and see me later, right? And we'll we'll discuss, we'll discuss, you know, how I get paid back later. No, before you hand over that money, you're gonna have everything in writing as far as what they're gonna owe you, correct? And I feel like that's what we need to do with our votes, right? So for one, for one, I'm gonna go on the record and say, I don't vote. Um, I don't believe in the voting system, but for anybody that do vote, and if I was to ever begin voting, it would only happen if we are voting that way. We have to use our votes as if it's monetary and we have to give it in exchange for something that's beneficial for us. Not just giving it to be giving it and then trying to hold somebody feet to the fire after you gave them the money. Because to me, that's that's working backwards. Yes. Um, the functionality, right? It would be based upon report, right? Um, it, it wouldn't be you hand over something. If you go to any of these startup companies, right? And start up and, and you get funded from certain hard lenders right when you're dealing with hard lenders they want to see a report they want to see that you already did a b and c before they give you any type of money right they're not going to just give you money just because you said that you could do a b and c there has to be some type of we have over 100 years of failure for us to see so it's almost an oxymoron in a sense it's, it's insanity absolutely um because the report doesn't show what have they done? Um, what have they shown us? So it almost falls on us. So now with the power of the vote, what happens is 
when we're dealing with countries, we're dealing with altruism, right? Altruism is the, is the selfless act. It means that you are basically in a form of altruism, you are you're partaking into something, right? Correct. With free will. So you got to understand the power of influence and the power of how to influence people. And the idea is always based upon playing chess. And when you're playing chess, you're a strategist, you're a tactician. So you're trying to get the person to do something on their own and then spread the message. This is the form of propaganda. So with the vote, it shows the people that's in bed or willing to say this is the best candidate for this job. The power, the main power of the vote is the, is the college electors, right? This is where the power is. Those are the major figures. That's the people, the statesmen, that has the power of the, the real vote in the sense of the Hold on a second, Jay. Hold on a second. Oh, Jay. Yeah, so we have to really look at this for what it is. And when we do, then we'll be able to counter-react. We'll be able to come up and be tacticians, understand how things work. We have to understand the fiber of America and what it's based upon. At this moment, we're in capitalism. Oh, capitalism, right? Yes. Capitalism gives us an opportunity Actually, less than two percent, but yeah, you're hundred percent right. It's, it's two trillion dollars we could recreate, one point eight goes back out. Could you imagine? So, we're at a disadvantage because of that, so and that's the problem at this moment. Uh, no, uh, you hit it right on the head, man. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, for all my listeners out there, uh, I want y'all to, you know. Look into purchasing this book, 
um, uh, get the audio version if you like. It's called Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. Um, it's, it's, an, a, it's, it's a great read for those who don't know. Napoleon Hill is the author of Think and Grow Rich, which is the best-selling success book of all time. Let me repeat that again. It's the best-selling success book of all time. It's called Think and Grow Rich. I've read it. It's phenomenal. But this book uh, that he uh, wrote called Outwitting the Devil is amazing. You hear what I'm saying? Uh, he wrote it in like the 1930s and the book wasn't published until 70 years after his death. Uh, uh, you know about this book, huh? Yes. Uh, amazing, right? Uh, man, go ahead, go ahead, like, elaborate on it some. If you wanna, if you wanna give a little insight to the book to to the people, since we since you've read it, I didn't know you read it. Yeah, well, I, I read it when um, when they first um, a little bit after when they discovered it because it was in the archive. Absolutely. Empowering that thought, that next thought. Because we have 3,000 um, thoughts per minute, but how do you capitalize on these thoughts? How do you, um, you as a person, control these thoughts? We're going right. to have bad thoughts, we're going to have good thoughts. But how do you control those thoughts and push them out? And and those thoughts become, become you in a sense. Absolutely. Are, are they positive thoughts? Are they negative thoughts, right? Um, and the, this the thing that I love about it is because reading the book and listening to the audio was even more amazing, right? Because you're actually listening to the interview between him and quote unquote the devil, right? And it just reconfirmed so much of what I already knew and then it put some icing on top of the cake of things that gave me that aha moment, right? Mm -hmm. And 98% of the world, 98% of humanity, their thoughts are controlled, meaning by propaganda, right? Yep. They are not thinking uh, for themselves. It's only the 2% that's actually critical thinkers. And it's even to the point where there's some of the 2% that 
isn't even aware of the power that they're using with their mind, right? Because I, I'll give I give you an example. Um, it's 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 a it's a guy I know um, who has manifested his reality in so many ways, right? Wealthy, everything he wants, he gets. Anything he put his mind to, he obtains. Uh, he'll say, yo, listen, I'm going to go down here to City Hall. I'm going to have this conversation with this, that, and third. I'm going to make this happen. And literally, he'll go do it, right? However, he doesn't understand or even kind of grasp to the ideology of manifestation. And I'm telling him, bro, you, you're, you're literally walking manifestation because anything you want you manifest in your life so this is all through the power of the mind right but the mind is so powerful that you can be uh thinking things into reality you can be creating your whole environment which we all have the capabilities of doing right especially the two percent because they aren't their thoughts aren't controlled but there's some of the two percent that aren't even aware of what they're doing but yet they're doing exactly what napoleon hill talks about in his book and i, I just felt that was pretty profound because that just shows that you don't even have to know the actual you know things that uh napoleon hill is discussing and then work off of it you just have to think critically think logically think definite right and and pretty much you have to demand what you want not ask you have to say i'm gonna be this I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to get that. Not, I hope I achieve this. I hope I get that. I hope, because with words like hope and maybe and all these other things, it, it, it brings doubt into the mind. Once doubt and fear and negativity and all that shit creep into your mind, you pretty much count yourself out. Um, and I just, I feel like that's very... I, th I think that's very amazing how we are as humans and the power we have to attract negative or positivity into our life. I totally agree with everything you said. Uh, when, when we talk about, um, just to elaborate the pros and the cons of, of what we were just talking about, um, fear that happens, you know, through the amygdala in the brain, on the left hemisphere of the brain. And it's an important tool to basically keep you level. Um, if you don't fit anything, you may walk yourself into danger or walk yourself into a bad situation. So fear is extremely important, but paralysis Analysis is what keeps us when you are overanalyzing certain things. And when you're continuously overanalyzing things and it's taking you away from what you need to do when you put your mind to it, 
Mm-hmm. That's the main problem. That's the problem we have as people. We tend to overanalyze things when we should. When we know we have it every, we have looked at it from every case or every scenario possible, and we still question it. We're still asking why we sh- I shouldn't do this because of this and the third. That's when things don't manifest. And it's a lot of people, like you were just talking about your, your friend. There's a lot of people that have that, they're walking on uh, manifestation. And, but like you said, if they don't really understand that, and they don't understand the power of the mind, then, you know, they tend to stay in certain scenarios that they should have never been in, or they stay into this, this psychological paradigm. Right. And in that psychological paradigm, it's like it keeps you there. And most people on planet Earth is in that psychological paradigm. And they can never get out of it. Because they don't they don't even understand that they have the ability to think outside of that 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 circle that they're in, that they put themselves in. Because we have to put ourselves in those situations. Especially if we have the mental capacity to think. And when you start to think outside of the box that's been given to you, then you start to see life for what it is. Absolutely. I like that you said that too. When you think outside of the box that has been given to you, right? That yeah. is that's profound to me because how I interpret that is I'm giving you this box, which means that everything in this box is what I want you to know. What about everything that I don't want you to know. You're only going to find that outside of the box, which I gave you. So until people start thinking outside of public school education, outside of religion, outside of what your parents taught you, which is tradition. When you start thinking outside of those parameters, a whole nother world opens up for you. And you're dangerous. Absolutely. Because you don't you don't conform to the status quo. Absolutely. The status quo is based upon communal and culture. What we were what we were perceived to be ethnicity. Ethnicity is your religion, the characteristics that that religion gives you, on the culture, schools, music, all these things are ethnicities, right? Inside mm-hmm. of those your people give this to you. Your ancestors give this to you. So it's for us to eat the fish and spit out the bones. That means our foundation is always going to be our foundation. But we have to be able to differentiate between the two and know what to keep and what to throw away. Right. And that's the new culture that we have to, the neo-culture, I would call it. The neo-culture has to be based upon all the information we have today and how we push forward from that information. That doesn't mean to abandon our ancestors, but it's not for us to do everything that our ancestors did because they made mistakes just like we make mistakes. Absolutely. Um, we, we all make mistakes and I, I also understand that a lot of our ancestors made mistakes with good intentions, right? Like yes. even, even with Malcolm, I mean with Martin Luther King, like even knowing that he woke uh, up to a lot of what was going on towards you know the end of his 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 physical time here um everything that he was doing prior to that he was doing in good faith like he honestly thought that that was the right approach and 
he was doing it with good intentions. Just so happened, he analyzed later on that, oh man, I may have walked my people into a burning building. You get what I'm saying? And yes. that's where I said, I don't, I don't really feel, you know, despise the man or anything like that because I understand that we mature, we grow, we learn, we get more educated about things as time go on. So only thing I can chalk it up is to, is that he had great intentions and the people, you know, as far as the power structure, the, you know, the government, the president that, you know, he, uh, at the time, they utilized what he was doing with good intentions for their benefits. And he was under the assumption that he was getting progress because what he was presenting to them, they was actually like, okay, that's not bad. We, we'll try to work on that. We'll do something. But they were actually taking it and utilizing it for our detriment. Um, so, yeah, you're right about that. And then we got to look at it from this position. We are reading a book, right? Yep. They were a part of the book. Right. So they didn't have the time to make decisions on the fly because they were living in a place of survival. Lynchings. A we, we, we tend to forget that. Absolutely. Lynchings. People going to jail, and I mean, people going to court and not being, you know, consumed or not being um, guilty of these heinous crimes, these monstrosities. Right. They were always getting off. So what he was dealing with was totally different than what we're dealing with today. So the, the, the constant stress of knowing that a European can come in and do whatever they want and get away with it. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, Lynch, if you look at uh, each year's progress, so we, there's on record at least close to about probably like eight to 9,000 when I was doing my research. And that's just on record. It's probably more. It's probably way more. So, you know, we're looking at the book and say, yo, he should have did it this way, this way. The information he had at the time, he thought he was doing the best case scenario. That's a fact. That's a fact. I was just about to say that he did it the best way he knew how to do it at that point in time, living it in, in real time. Yes. Um, and, and now that we have the capabilities to, you know, go back in time and look at what was done, we're able to judge, we're able to criticize, we're able to catch the mistakes, we're able to see how we can actually move forward uh, with the knowledge that we have on what our ancestors done before us. Yes. Um, so, man, I, I just want to thank you, Brother Jay. It's been uh, a phenomenal segment. Uh, I believe we touched on a lot. Um, I believe the listeners uh, will learn and obtain a lot from this. And I definitely look forward to, you know, getting back uh on on this on this not topic right because we can always you know address certain things like this but just getting back on uh this platform and and addressing different issues and and enlightening the people on different things you're definitely going to be one of my you know uh frequent guests <laughs> uh, yeah no absolutely brother and uh, you know, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate your time. Um, look forward to building with you and 
you know, have a blessed, have a blessed rest of your day, brother. You too, brother. I mean, I appreciate what you're doing and what you're doing is phenomenal. And I think that we'll be able to wake up a lot of different people.